Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Psalm 14. I'd like to thank you for being here tonight. I'd like to thank you for watching online. I'd like to say to those of you who put the pictures of your family and uh, those who text and say that they've been watching, that is a true encouragement. And I really appreciate that. Appreciate all of you. Appreciate you loving Jesus enough to get together, sit down, take out your Bibles, and honor and worship Him. I believe it's a testimony to other members of your church and to your neighbors that you love Jesus enough to take time apart for Him. And I praise the Lord for that. Uh, you are a unique church in every other way, too, because of how you give to missions, missions and how you've done all you have. And so a little bit of hassle is not too big for us. I want to read with you Psalm 14. Oh, my goodness, I haven't got my phone. Trent, or somebody, find my phone so I'll be able to tell what time it is to quit on time. Or tell me 5.30, if you don't mind, at 5.30. Psalm 14, this is a very dark chapter. And I want you to know that before you read it, because you have to know who we are. Are people naturally good or are they bad? Are people naturally good or are they wicked? And in our society, we want to believe that they are good, but biblically, they are not good. They are bad. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, thank you, that there, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that, look, that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and they call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed me. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the honor we have of being together uh, maybe not in an auditorium, but seated in our homes and online together or here in the parking lot together in our cars with our family. We're testifying to our children that we love you enough to set aside time. We're testifying to our children that we honor you and make you much of you. And God, we are at the same time honoring you by looking into your word and learning and growing. I pray for our people. I pray for those that are hurting. I pray for those that are dealing with financial stress. And I pray for those, Lord, that are dealing with some kind of health issue. And I pray, God, that you'd bless your people and help us. Now, God, help us to understand the true condition of man and help us understand what we have to tell them the gospel and we have to be honest about who we are. And I'll give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I title this man's total and complete wickedness. And I would like to remind you that I'd like to remind you that the Bible is very clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is, this passage of Scripture is a passage of Scripture that almost none of your friends would like. This is a passage of Scripture that we as a society, 
not born again people, but normal American people would reject. Because this passage of scripture tells us the true character of man. It's a teaching passage of scripture. It's also found in Psalm 53. It's almost an identical psalm that we'll look at in a year or so. I want you to go through the psalm with me today. And I just remind you that you will not enjoy what it says unless you admit that you have sinned and that you did need Christ and you have trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior. What is your attitude toward God? That's the first question that we answer tonight. What is your true attitude towards God? The fool has said in his heart, now, he might not say this out loud. He wouldn't fit into culture. He wouldn't fit into society. Maybe it's as, as easily if he said there is no God, but the, in his heart, this guy really believes God doesn't exist. There is no God. The fool says in his heart, no God. The fool says that in his heart. I would like to ask you which category we fit in, which category you fit in. Many of our people and those watching on the internet right now might be, uh, when they think about God, they would say, well, I tried him, but I didn't like it. They reject all that they know about God because they were in a legalistic family. They were unhappy because of the way their parents disciplined them. Their parents were strict, and so they take that on, on God and say, I don't believe God exists. Other people would say, I just find God and the Bible boring and irrelevant. They say in their heart, there is no God. Others would say, I have no need for God. Everything's good in my life. If I were in trouble, maybe. If I were weak and sickly like you, if I didn't have everything together like you, I might need God. They have never seriously been interested in spiritual matters. And even God couldn't help them. They think they're so bad off, God couldn't help them. Or there are some who would say... I believe in evolution, and I reject any supernatural intervention on earth. I would call myself an atheist and say, literally, there is no God. The agnostic would say, well, I'm just not sure. But many believers live like practical atheists. They say that they believe, but they never pray and they never serve. They say that they believe the Bible, but they never read it. They never study it or seek to obey it. They say they believe in heaven and hell, but never do anything to share the gospel. They say they love God, but instead of worshiping with other believers, they seek their own pleasures in that time. Say, they say God is important, but their priorities in time and talents and treasures do not give evidence of that. The attitude might only be expressed in the heart and in private, but they are saying, no God. He is not a fool because he is dumb. He actually thinks he's smart. He believes he's smart enough to know that no one's smarter than him. He has reached the crest of an evolved being. He says in his heart, there is no God. Now, before I proceed into the psalm with you, I want to remind you, I don't ever want to live like there is no God. When I look around and I see everything that's happening in our world today, I see what's going on in the finances of our country. I see what's going on in, in our health and everything else that's happening. I don't want to forget God. I don't want to be a practical atheist. I want to be one who constantly has in my mind the Lord God of heaven. But here's what's going on in the psalm. God is giving his prognosis. God is saying it's almost like God's coming to a courtroom. And God walks into this courtroom and he says, let me tell you, I made you. I am the creator and let me tell you who you are. Read with me if you would. 
Psalm 14, 1, again, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now notice, God said they are corrupt, they are twisted, they're, uh, they do abominable works, and there's not a one of them that does good. Now, on a lot of Psalms, we don't have a good New Testament commentary. But whenever you want to know what the Old Testament means, if you find it in the New Testament, where one of the preachers in the New Testament copied that, and he took the Word of God out of the Old Testament and commented on it, the Holy Spirit was saying, here's what I said, now here's more light. Here's what I said, and let me make sure you understand it. So we know what Psalm 14 is about. We know it's about man's horrible, wicked depravity. We know it's about man not measuring up. We know that because in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, please, at home and wherever you are with your kids, take your Bible and go there. Just let me say this. We need to know this. You see, you can't get well till you know you're sick. And you could be raised in a church like ours, in a family like yours, and you could be a good person. But until you come to the point that you know you're a sinner, you probably won't trust Christ. What did the Apostle Paul say in the book of Romans that this passage meant? Read with me, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. We have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Paul said, Jews, you can't feel like you're better than Gentiles. And you, you got to understand, if, if there's anything the Scripture teaches, all have sinned. And so he goes on to write this. Listen, as it is written. He's quoting the Psalms. Bible preachers quote the Bible. New Testament Bible preachers are always quoting the Bible. They quote the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. Verse 10 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, we all often skip this part of the Bible, but when Paul elaborates on that, he takes us much further and explains to us what that means. He says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, there is none that understands, and they don't even look for God. There is none that seeks after God. He says they are all gone out of the way. Everybody's gotten off track. Everybody's doing their own thing. Everybody's not doing what God wants them to do. They are together become unprofitable. They're not profitable to the creator who made them. They, none that do good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. He's, he is describing us. We're like, no, no, that's not us. But if you would look at our society and you'd look at how many people lie about God and lie about truth, if you look at how fast we are to kill babies and how fast we are to, to, to shed blood, we, it's exactly what the Word of God's saying here. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't worry about what God says. Now we know that these, whatsoever things the law says, it says to them that are under law. Now listen to this. Jude, so you understand, he's talking to you, you're under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, before I go to the next verse, can you just understand? We say, I don't deserve this. If God was a good God, he'd do better by me. Well, the Bible basically saying here in Romans chapter 3, probably more than basically, it's clearly saying, no, you are not good. Hush. Stop your mouth. 
You are not good. All are guilty before God. We can't argue with the judge. We can't discuss whether or not we should get a second opportunity. We can't discuss that. All have sinned. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, For by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified. Nobody's going to do good enough in his sight to go to heaven. The law only showed me the knowledge of sin. That passage kind of sums itself back up in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the best commentary ever written on Psalm 14. That's the best commentary because it's God's commentary. It is, un it is unmistakably clearly the will of God that we would understand how needy we are. The doctor has walked in the room. The doctor has run all the examinations. And the doctor law backs up and says, you are guilty. You are going to die. There is no hope for you. And when you cry out, Dr. Grace steps in and says, you can be saved by trusting Jesus Christ. This is the accusation of the prosecutor in, in, the, in God's trial against sin. Uh, we're going to argue with that. We don't like it. We don't appreciate that God talks to us that way. We don't want God to say those things to us. And we get to the New Testament and Jesus indirectly kind of throws more light on it. Because we would think that everybody would love God and everybody would seek God. And we would think that all Americans want to know God. Jesus said in John 1, 12, he came to the, John 1, 11, he came to the world, but his own received him not. To as many as received him, then gave you the power to become the sons of God. Jesus came and his own people didn't want him. His government didn't want him. His country didn't want him. Humans don't want Jesus. People don't want him. In John chapter 3 and verse 18, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's one of my favorite verses I use anytime I talk about missions. God didn't send Jesus here to condemn the world. They didn't need condemning. They were already condemned. We'll look at that just a little bit here, but they were already condemned. He came not to condemn. He came to save. He that believeth not, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. I would remind you, and I know you know, but I would remind you that you will not wait to get to the, the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne to find out if you're saved. You won't get there and have your good and bad weighed out. If you have a trusted Christ, you are already condemned. You are already marked to go to hell. Your children are on their way to a Christless eternity. Your family's on its way to a crisis eternity if we don't share Jesus with them. Why wouldn't people come to Jesus? John said in John 3, 19, this is the condemnation that light has come to the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone that does evil hates the light and neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. I just want to remind you. I want to strongly remind you, parents, your kids that, aren't, that are old enough to know better, they're old enough to have reached the age of accountability, they're, they're sinners, and they're on their way to hell. 
and they need to know Jesus. That ought to break our hearts. That's why we ought never let them miss getting in the Word of God. That's why we ought to pray about them being saved every day. We need to understand that because there are, God has no grandchildren. And because there are children, they won't go to heaven. They'll only go to heaven if they become a child of God through grace. I want you to go back with me to Psalm chapter 14 and verse 1. You know what's going on here is God doesn't start with what the sinner does. He starts with what he thinks. Because if you read Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart. That's what he's thinking and talking about in his heart, in his mind. He's saying there is no God. We're not here saying he's a sinner because he disobeys. We're not saying he's a sinner because he commits crimes. We're saying he's a sinner because inside he says, I don't need God. God doesn't exist. Sinners are thinking wicked thoughts about God. They are twisted. They're corrupt. They're twisted. They do horrible things. And basically he says, I've looked it over and not a one of them do good. We need to understand. As depraved and wicked as the people are in China or India or some dark heathen place of Africa, every person without Christ is in the same condition. All have sinned against a holy God. We in no way look at the goodness of man. We look at the goodness of God. We see God's goodness in spite of our sin and our, our ugliness and our bad attitude. Go back with me, if you would, to Psalm 14, too. In Psalm 14, too, it's like God said, I know what you're thinking, and I know how, how you are, but let me look over the earth and see what I see. In Psalm 14, too, he said, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men. So it's like as though, I don't know how you picture it, but it's like God in heaven looks down and he's checking us out. He's looking over humankind. He's looking over mankind and womankind and childrenkind. He's looking at all of us. And this is what he says. Let me see in verse two, if there are any that do understand and seek God. Let me see. Let the God of heaven, the creator God, the God who owns us all, the God who will judge everything, look down and see what he says. And this is what he says. Verse 3. They are all gone aside. All. All. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This psalm has to be the psalm we hear and sing. To remember, he fixes broken things, and we need to know that we are or were broken. In Psalm 14, 4, they don't even have enough sense to call on God. In Psalm 14, 4, it says, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Do these workers of iniquity not have enough sense to call on God? They, they commit sin. They eat up my people like bread. They destroy other people, but then he ends it with this, and they do not call upon the Lord. When my children were small, I dreamed and prayed all the time about their salvation. I'm concerned now about my grandchildren's salvation. It ought to be heavy on our hearts when we realize 
that as much as you may love your grandchildren and think they're the sweetest and the most wonderful, as much as you may look at your small child and think how wonderful your child is and how great and beautiful and everything else you say about your child, when he reaches the age of accountability and when she reaches the age of accountability, she will accept Christ or she will go to hell when she gets old enough, when she dies. They are condemned already. When God looked at the true condition of man, he saw that man is sinful. Man has fallen short. And there is nothing in man that could get him to heaven. And there will be a judgment. And there will be a judgment. In Psalm chapter 14 and verse 5, there were they in great fear. And they stand finally before God. They can say all day long, there is no God. But one day, all will die and all will stand before God. And there will be great fear if they don't know Jesus. And you don't have to have that kind of fear because you're born again and your sins have been forgiven. But you need to understand that our precious friends and those that we don't know will die and stand before God in great fear. You see, God's always close. God is always at hand where you can be saved. God is in the generation of the righteous. God's got people here sharing truth. God's got you and your family so they can hear the truth, so they can know they'll go to heaven when they die. God's got us here to make a difference. There will be judgment. You see, they have lived their lives mocking the weak. The Bible says in Psalm 14, 6, you have shamed the counsel of the poor. Because the Lord is his refuge. See, they've sinned and it's now come from their thoughts into their actions. And the humble and the weak and the poor can only turn to God. The wicked mock the people that love God. The wicked mock people for their weakness and their fragility that makes them need God. They say that we're trusting foolishness. But when you realize that you have no one you can go to but Jesus... You can be saved. Let me take you to the last verse. Let me just say to you that I know this has been a negative psalm, but I didn't write it. And if you're going to preach the Bible, you're going to come across very ugly, harsh realities. Can you imagine when Stephen stands up in your church and says, open your songbooks to Psalm 14. And when you start singing a song about how wicked man is, but that's what they did. In the nation of Israel. In their 150 songs in their book, two of them almost said the same thing. But it ends in Psalm 14, 7. Salvation comes from the Lord. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Now this is back to being one of those psalms with a prophecy in it. They're everywhere. You see, what's really happened is the nation of Israel has become so wicked that they are, so that they are losing the blessing of God. They've been cast out of their land. And they need to realize that if they want God to step in, they've got to realize who they are and how sinful they are. And they've got to call on God. And the, psalmist say, the last verse of the song says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come from Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus will die. 
And that's where his blood will be shed. And that's how I can have the forgiveness of my sins. That's how I can know I'll go to heaven when I die. I won't go to heaven because of any goodness because Psalm chapter 14 verses 1 through 6 describes me without Jesus. It's who I was. It's a condition I had. But I needed to see myself that way. So I'd know I needed Jesus. But salvation comes to God's people, to those who call on him. God will step in someday and bring Israel and his people back to their land. Look in chapter 14 and verse 7 and notice, because your Bible students notice the word captivity. They've been taken into captivity. They're suffering as a result of their sin. Sin always hurts. Sin brings shame. Sin brings suffering. You can't sin and get away with it. You can't try to play with God's grace like you can. We can't do it. It says, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, boy, Jacob and Israel will be glad. God will save Israel and he'll bring them back to their land. And that causes his people to rejoice. In spite of their sin, in spite of six ugly verses, God's still there. What a God. What a God. And tonight, I love you. But it ought to weigh heavy, heavy on our hearts that if our children don't come to know Jesus, they'll go to hell. It ought to be pray for them, disciple them, have family devotions with them, get them under the sound of the word of God every time you can. I don't want my children to not know Jesus. But I also want to be honest and say this. Uncle George and Uncle Frank... And Uncle A.B., if you don't know Jesus, you'll die and go to hell. I want to say that if you live in China or India or Indonesia or Peru or the United States, if you don't know Jesus, you'll go to hell. That's why we're a missionary church. That's why we're praying for our people. That's why we're praying that the gospel will go out. Because when you read Psalm 14, you read one of the harshest verses in the scriptures. You read, there is none righteous, no, not one. You read, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why we'll never come to church thinking we're better than anybody. That's why we'll never look down our nose at anyone. That's why we'll love everybody from everywhere because we know that if it weren't for his grace, we'd be in the same condition in the same place. If you're not saved, get saved. If you're listening on the internet, somebody shares this with you, know your condition and trust Christ. If you are a born-again believer, let's get involved in sharing the gospel, inviting our friends, and sending missionaries. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 14, though it hasn't been comfortable studying it nor preaching it. But God, I'd have never got the surgery if I hadn't have known I had the cancer. I'd have never gotten the salvation if I hadn't have known I was a sinner. And I thank you for saving me. I thank you for saving your people. I thank you for all that you're doing. God, I pray your name would be glorified and magnified like never before. And we'll praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you for coming. I know it's a little less convenient to come here in your car especially for Brother John to stand here in the rain and then the deacons are standing around. But I really think that getting together does something for all of us.
I think that being under the sound of preaching in person is a lot different and a lot better. So thank you for coming. Thank you for all the families at home that took your time to set your family down. And like all those beautiful pictures you send, you've got the children and their Bibles. What a lesson. What a testimony. Someday when your kids are old, they'll share those pictures and say, well, my mom and daddy did when we couldn't go to church. They still took me to church. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for all that you're doing. I appreciate you very much. I love you more than I could ever tell you. And I cannot wait till we're back together again. But till then, we're going to keep on serving Jesus and loving him. So, Lord willing, I'll see you Thursday night at 7 o'clock right back here on this old trailer. God bless you and good night.